Hello, and welcome back to Conversations with the Mind. I am your reinvigorated host, Shane LaMaster. I just first wanted to start off by saying thank you to our listeners for your continued listenership and support um, for all you new people to the podcast. Thank you for joining us today. It's going to be a cracker. Um, anyway, I wanted to uh, shout out a little bit of an apology, uh, though I'm not sure uh, how guilty I feel about it necessarily. But uh, an apology to all of our listeners. I have taken, uh, I think, the last six months off of the podcast. Um, I have been recording a number of interviews in that time for the show, but I have not released anything in the last six months. There's a whole heap of reasons why I didn't release in the last six months. I'm not going to get into all of them, but life has just been extremely busy as COVID regulations have eased up. Uh, business is booming. Um, you know, working through my PhD program, all sorts of things. Uh, yeah, it's just been freaking crazy. So just wanted to shoot out a little apology to all our listeners, although I don't feel too guilty about it because uh, I have been uh, still recording interviews, but I have been making uh, leaps and bounds in other areas of my life. And sometimes that's just what we need to do. We need to take a break from some things so that we can devote more energy to other things. And believe me, the things that I am devoting my energy to in the absence of the podcast have been largely focused on helping humanity and helping other people. So um, it has not been a, a time of selfishness, really. Uh, I've been given a lot of my time and energy to helping others. So that being said, I just want to say welcome back to the show and uh, thank you for coming back after this six-month hiatus. Um, we are planning on releasing a lot more content very soon. Um, but for now, uh, if you wouldn't mind, just click on, um, you know, click on our subscription. So on whatever podcast app you're listening to, you can usually subscribe to a podcast so that you get notifications when we release new stuff. Uh, you can go to our Facebook and our YouTube and also subscribe there. Uh, it's MindOps, M-I-N-D hyphen O-P-S. Um, that's the YouTube page as well as the Facebook page. Um, you can find old archived episodes. You can find links to a lot of uh, informational videos about a number of topics that we talk about on the show. Uh, and you can find all sorts of helpful tools for um, self-therapy, for uh, psychology, for philosophy, for all sorts of things. Um, so yeah, go check those out. Like and share all of our social media posts. That really does help, and it only takes you a split second to do so. But it really, really, really helps out the podcast. So um, please continue to do that. I really appreciate all of you out there. Uh, without further ado... Let's get out of this intro and into some of the content. Welcome back, folks.
All right, so this is the part of the show where I give you a piece of my mind and tell you some of the things that I've been thinking about. And uh, I thought I'd take some time today to talk about a new organization that is being founded by my good friend Kevin Matthews. Uh, He's the president of the Denver Psilocybin Policy Review Panel. Uh, He's also going to be on the show uh, in a few episodes Um, But he just started a new organization called Vote Nature, and uh, it's still in its infancy. Uh, We're still trying to get funding, and I say we're because uh, Kevin has recruited me to become um, part of the board of directors, um, part of the um, initiatory team. Uh, I haven't quite come up with a title yet for what my position would be, but for the time being, uh, he's just been calling me his medical director. Um, Sort of, you know, I don't have a a medical degree, but sort of uh, playing the role of uh, an expert on the research uh, when it comes to psychedelics and uh, plant medicines. So, uh, also, I'll be I'll be serving in in a capacity to bridge, uh, you know, bridge communication gaps between clinicians, physicians, and politicians, um, because I can speak both languages. So today, for a piece of my mind, I'm just going to read to you guys um, a little bit of a release uh, that came from Vote Nature, just give you a little bit of information about it. Um, if you are interested in checking it out yourself um hold on one second and i'm going to find out i want to make sure that i get this correct okay so it is it's votenature.org v-o-t-e-n-a-t-u-r-e dot org okay so let me read you this little blurb before we get into the introduction of our guest today Okay, Vote Nature is an impact hub and psychedelic social advocacy network designed to give voice to the voiceless, influence legislation, educate the public, and build community. Like most social networks, you can create a profile, connect with others, comment, and post videos. The biggest difference is that we are geared towards advocacy and content can be shared directly with your elected officials with the click of a button. The biggest impact we can make in psychedelic reform is sharing our personal stories of healing and transformation from working with plant medicines. Your voice matters, and you can make a difference. The more we can put a face and voice to the movement, yours, the more we can transform public opinion. Have you ever asked, how can I get involved in the psychedelic movement? Many people don't have the time to work directly on a campaign or lobby their elected officials, but they want to make a difference, create impact, and most importantly, connect with like-minded individuals. We make this easy by creating a community for you to not only connect and contribute to the movement, but influence your lawmakers and elected officials to vote nature by letting them know how you feel about liberating plant medicine. We coordinate with the leaders of psychedelic reform movements locally and nationally to host their campaign, bill, or resolution. You have access to that content and can decide your level of involvement or support. You can comment, participate in pledges and polling, and if you're all in, create your own videos as testimony to support efforts where you live. You can share everything directly with your elected officials at the federal, state, local, and 
gubernatorial level. That's uh, the level of governor. You can also connect with others and expand your personal network. The more user-generated video testimonials and content created at Vote Nature, the more we can demonstrate that there is an influential constituency nationwide and globally that supports psychedelic reform and equitable access to entheogens. Access to Vote Nature is free forever. One of the challenges in grassroots psychedelic reform, however, is answering who's paying for it. Local campaigns can be costly, and it often takes millions of dollars to be successful with statewide efforts. Even lobbying locally or at state legislatures and assemblies takes time and costs money. Therefore, members will have the option of joining our subscription program and getting access to private community network. Subscriptions fund Vote Nature and the Vote Nature Impact Fund to provide currency and energy to the movement in order to support local, state, and national work so we can say we did it because the effort was in part paid for by the people. Okay. So, guys, I just wanted to share a little bit about Vote Nature with you. Um, it is it's really a, a groundbreaking uh, idea that Kevin came up with, and I'm just fully on board 100% with it. Um, one of the biggest reasons why I have a distaste for government and why I don't participate in a lot of, you know, government-based activities that we as uh, citizens are allowed to, to participate in is because, um, you know, as we all know, you know, a lot of government officials are controlled by money and lobbyists and are making decisions on our behalf but not in our best interests, you know. Um, and, you know, even even people who choose not to vote, uh, you know, which I didn't vote for a number of years too, felt that, uh, you know, this so-called democracy was not a democracy at all, that um, those with the money and the influence and the, uh, the correct networks um, would be put into political power and that the voice of the people uh, didn't really matter. Um, I currently <clears throat> do believe that uh, voting does matter. Um, it is a, it's a freedom that we all get to enjoy and that we should participate in in order to uh, maintain that. Um, but what Vote Nature does, which is so cool and my favorite thing about Vote Nature, is that it truly puts the power back in the hands of the people. We are trying to re-democratize uh, politics and policy around um, psychedelics and um, plant medicines and other things. So what that means and what you, what you might have uh, understood from what I read is that um, whatever the people, you know, if you're a subscriber, if you're a member to Vote Nature uh, and you participate on the chats, whatever the people want Vote Nature to pursue is what Vote Nature will pursue. It's not based off of, um, you know, the administrators or the board of directors or anything like that. It is entirely guided by the people involved, uh, you, you people involved with Vote Nature, which is sort of unheard of these days in, in politics. So it's really cool, you know, if, if uh, the people decide they want Vote Nature to get in and uh, back... Um, you know, cannabis reform in a certain state, you know, or 
um, or not uh, back a certain um, bill or, or piece of legislation. You know, we will listen to the people and we are guided by you. Uh, we believe that all of you are intelligent and especially the community as a whole is far more intelligent than any uh, board of directors or any single individuals um, who are who may be administrators or staff in Vote Nature. Another really cool piece of this project is the the fact that we're engaging uh, the idea of storytelling, right? So storytelling has been a piece or a part of human culture since the beginning of human culture. You know, that's what cave drawings are and, and uh, papyrus, um, you know, writings and all these things. They're, they're telling stories of our history and stories of what what it was like, what the climate for uh, human beings and, and, you know, social structures and whatever it was were for humans. So storytelling has always been a part of um, what it means to be human. And we really wanted to engage uh, that aspect of humanity because it, it hits home so hard with all of us, uh, the stories that we tell um, and we can connect with. So another really awesome thing about Vote Nature is exactly what, what you heard and what I read is that if you become a member or you subscribe to Vote Nature, you can create your own videos, tell your own stories uh, about your psychedelic use and all the benefits that you've gotten from it. Um, and, and it doesn't rely on uh, you know clinical studies, which cost millions of dollars and take many years to complete um, and you got to go through all the loopholes of publishing and getting it to the right people and through the red tape and all that stuff. Uh, you as citizens, as people, can tell your own stories and upload them to the site. And Vote Nature acts as a bridge to get those stories directly to the legislators, directly to the people who create uh, uh, policy and who vote on policy. And it's in a story form so that, you know, they're not getting a report. How many reports do they get across their desk that they just skim over? It's not like that, guys. Um, they get these stories. They get these videos. They get these letters from all of you. And they're stories. So, so they are able to connect more with them. And your stories mean so much. And not just stories about uh, all the benefits and, and uh, all the great things that come from it, but also, you know, stories about... Uh, cautionary tales and and things that we need to make sure that we account for as we move forward in this psychedelic revolution um, so that we do it right this time okay so vote nature is a really cool platform i really encourage you all to go check it out again votenature.org um, reach out to me if you have any further questions also you can reach out to kevin matthews who is the founder of vote nature uh, he's all over social media facebook instagram it should be easy to find him. Um, but he will be on the podcast uh, in a few episodes. I believe uh, we're hoping to have him on for a very, very special episode. Um, so stick around for that. And that's been a piece of my mind today. All right. So our guest today, extremely special guest, Miss Sarah Gale. Now, Sarah also serves with me on the Denver Psilocybin um, Policy Review Panel. Um, she She's just such an incredible person. Um, she has a background in wilderness therapy, environmental education, 
she has a love for nature. Uh, she's a yoga practitioner, a meditation practitioner. She's been an employee of the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, MAPS, for a long time. Uh, she's the former director of the Zendo Project, which is um, sort of uh, uh, a subgroup under MAPS that uh, focuses entirely on harm reduction. Uh, they have a huge tent at a Burning Man, uh, you know, where people go in who are having challenging experiences, and, you know, they, they help those people through there. Uh, Sarah is also, um, you know, a huge contributor and a partner of mine in our project, uh, also through MAPS, to uh, form and distribute a new curriculum uh, to educate our first responders here in Colorado and Denver uh, police, fire, EMTs, um, you know, hospital staff, all sorts of people who might come in contact with those on psychedelic substances. We're trying to educate them not only on what psychedelic substances are and change that narrative, but also to give them tools and how to better manage those situations and, and people who are having tough times. Um, Sarah comes with a ton of experience um, doing this and working with um, – you know, organizations and agencies such as police departments and, um, you know, all, all these uh, sorts of first responders. So it is going to be amazing. Um, you guys are in for a treat today with this podcast. Uh, I will put all of her contact information in the description for the podcast, but if you choose not to go to the description, I'll just put it here. Uh, so you can find out more about Sarah at zendoproject.org. That's Z-E-N-D-O project.org. Or her personal uh, private practice uh, website, remembering.org. That's R-E hyphen M-E-M-B-E-R-I-N-G. Re membering.org. Okay, so without further ado, let's get into the show. Hope you guys like it. Thank you for being here. through conversations with interesting people. Our mission is to engage the collective mind piece by piece to bring greater clarity of mind to our listeners locally and across the planet and to contribute to broaden the shared experiential knowledge and wisdom of existence. As we take a quick break from Conversations with the Mind, I just want to let you know that this award-winning episode of the podcast is brought to you by MindOps. So go check out the MindOps website, M-I-N-D-O-P-S. Now back to the show. All right, folks, welcome back to Conversations with the Mind. I'm your host, Shayla Master, and today we're here with a very special guest, Sarah Gale. How are you? I am doing well today. It's a beautiful, sunny day in Boulder, Colorado. <laughs> yeah, so we're recording this on a Friday, and before we jumped on here, you were like, thank goodness it's Friday, um, which, which tells me that you've had a stressful week, but, um, you know, if people are watching this on YouTube, uh, you look very calm and peaceful today in your space, so 
<laughs> so I hope you're doing okay. Thank you. Yes, I am. <laughs> so the first question that I always ask my guests, uh, the only real structured question that I have, um, which is that the podcast name is Conversations with the Mind. And I'm wondering, when you hear that phrase, what comes to your mind? Uh, how do you how do you pick that apart? Uh, what sort of um, visions or, or, or anything comes to mind when I say the phrase conversations with the mind? What does that mean? Hmm. The first thing that emerges for me is the relationship that we have with our mind hmm. and uh, the nature and quality of that relationship. And I think of my work as a therapist and as a healer and the dynamic relationship that people have with their mind as friend or ally, as enemy or foe. Um, and how that shifts and changes throughout the lifetime and um, how, you know, one's relationship to the mind and their, uh, that dynamic relationship with the mind is really, I think, part of what really determines our state of well-being and our state of peace and happiness um, or are, or not. <laughs> um, and one thing that comes to mind <laughs> is uh, a teaching that um, I received at Naropa University, um, which is where I went to graduate school around meditation, which was uh, the puppy metaphor, which I really, I really like for meditation. And I also apply it to other things in my life. And it's when you're meditating, you want to treat your mind like a puppy on a leash. So don't hold the leash too tight because then your mind's going to be straining and pulling and resisting and uh, don't be too loose. And when you're meditating and just let your mind absolutely go wherever the idea with meditation is having that puppy on a leash that is not too loose and not too tight so that there's some room to work with it and that it's uh, a joyous walk together <laughs> and um, that there's not resistance and intention, um, but that you're also not just letting the, the puppy run, run completely wild and just, you know, uh, take over. <laughs> yeah, I love that. And uh, I was actually just going to ask you because that's such a, such a great way to think about our minds is, uh, you know, that we're in relationship with it. Um, and so I was going to ask you, like, what is your relationship with your mind? And um, is that how you try and maintain not only in a meditative space, but in an everyday context? Like, do you try and maintain that relationship as if it was a puppy? Mm. Yeah. Wow, such a big question. Um, yeah, so I think that consistently striving and working on developing a loving and um, kind relationship with my mind. So um, 
you know, throughout my life, I've like, like all of us have, have worked with, um, my challenges and traumas and, um, wellness and different, different levels of mental distress and mental peace. Um, I'm a, a very mentally oriented person. Um, for people who are interested in astrology and like that stuff, I'm like Aquarian all across the board. So I'm a very air sign, very mental in my mind. And um, I, my work in my life has been to be in my body and to bring my, my mind into balance with my heart and in my body into an embodied being on this planet. My natural tendency is to and I think this can be common, especially in, in what we might call Western world or Western civilization, um, which is very mentally focused and focused on the mind. So a lot of my work in my life has really been um, quieting my mind, uh, bringing it into balance with the rest of my being, grounding it in this reality, in this earth realm and um, bringing some of, uh, you know, that can look like bringing some visionary ideas actually into embodied practice. Um, and it can also look like, yeah, definitely having to work, working a lot with myself through meditation and through other practices to help to um, balance and find peace. I'm a thinker. I think, think, think all day long. <laughs> and sometimes those thoughts are um, really beautiful. And sometimes they're neutral and sometimes they're distressing. And so, yeah, I think that where I'm at right now is, um, yeah, really working every day to befriend and, uh, yeah, befriend my mind. Well, that's definitely what you would want to do with a puppy for sure. That's what I would want to do with a puppy. <clears throat> Be a, be a friend to it um but I was also trying to think you know if I think for a lot of people myself included uh in the last year you know 2020 was sort of a it was a hard year for everybody um and on top of that I mean here in Colorado we had really destructive fires um you know we've had all sorts of things um shootings recently we had a stabbing on my campus recently so a lot of uh, sort of wild behavior and, and things that um, people would normally, you know, bring fear into their life. Um, and so I know for me personally, uh, like I've always suffered with, um, you know, major depressive disorder at times and seasonal affective disorder, you know, during the winter months. And this year in particular has just really hit me super, super hard uh, with that piece. And so, and I think a lot of the listeners can, can probably relate. Um, I think most people, even if they don't normally experience depression, experience something like that in this last year um, with the COVID stuff going on, especially. And so I think it could be helpful for all of us uh, if you wouldn't mind sharing, like, how do you, um, when, you're, when your relationship with your mind is... Um, in that moment, like a destructive relationship. So your mind is working against you, you know, and it's telling you things that may not be true. The mind is this, it, sometimes it's a wonderful ability. Sometimes it's not a wonderful ability, but your mind can lie to you, right? It can lie to you in so many ways. 
Whereas like your heart or your gut brain doesn't have that ability as much, you know, it, it, uh, it can't cognitively, you know, tell you a lie, but your mind can, and it does a lot of the time. And, and that's a big thing with depression. It's, um, you know, your mind starts telling you, you know, you're not good enough, or you're not going to, you're not going to achieve what you're working on or, or whatever. And that relationship becomes more destructive than, than constructive. So how do you, um, how do you work with those kind of relationship states when those things come on? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you, Shane, for presenting um, all that is going on. Um, some of what's going on in the, in the world right now, as well as locally, I know we live in the same state and yeah, um, it definitely this past year, I think has, has tested us to some pretty extreme, um, extents and, uh, it's been, you know, as, as a therapist and helping people navigate their experiences, um, as someone with, with, uh, most of my professional life working with crisis when people are in extreme crisis, um, specifically related to psychedelics, but also otherwise and other non-ordinary states. Um, I've really been seeing, you know, what we've been going through is this really, uh, global crisis. And, um, I think just like with, uh, spiritual mystical experiences or challenging psychedelic experiences, uh, there's an opportunity here for us to move through the other side. Um, uh, one of my biggest teachers and mentors or, or two of my biggest teachers and mentors are Alex Gray and Stan Groff and um, have learned so much from, from those two men. And, um, you know, both of them talk about perinatal matrices and, and Alex has been talking a little bit lately around um seeing the experience that we're going through right now is kind of a birthing process. And, you know, when you're in the middle of birth, it can feel like a crisis. It's, it's, there's an experience and it's happening and it's big and there's nothing stopping it. (laughs) So yeah, for myself, I feel like I've been trying to, um, and working with my clients, but for myself, really trying to trust that process. Like it's really tested my, it's tested my trust uh, to, to, in a, in a really big way, um, like my deep trust, like, what is it that I, that I trust? What is it that I find safety in? What can I, um, what can I connect with that has purpose and meaning and helps anchor me into a place that feels, uh, sane and well and, uh, alive. And, um, it's a, it's a daily practice, um, you know, to, I think that's the thing with our minds is like, or with healing in general, right. It's a daily practice. We have to continue to repeat those things over and over. So beginning of COVID definitely like was really challenging, lost a lot of my, my, uh, orientation with my daily ritual. And I think that's what happened for a lot of people is like losing touch with like morning and evening and like a sense of compass of like the, the flow of the day and especially being indoors a lot. Right. And kind of disconnected from nature and disconnected from the flow of the day. So been really trying to reconnect to those, 
rituals, my morning and nighttime rituals, um, whether that's, which includes meditation, reading, journaling, uh, yoga, movement, exercise. I do really well with structure and ritual, especially in the morning and in the evening. Um, I think that, yeah, that really helps me through my day. And then um, you know, as a, as a more somatically informed person and therapist, I, I take a really like bottom up approach, right? Like top down, bottom up approaches. So meaning that like, if my mind is not doing well, <laughs> um, it, I, I try to come into my body and be like, what needs to be resolved here? Right. What is, what is going on? Cause our, our mind, our, our mind, our, our mind body system the, the all one system of the mind body. Um, I think our mind is really responding to cues that the body is giving it. Right. And, and that's what we see with, with trauma, with big trauma, PTSD trauma, as well as little trauma. So I think that if, if I notice myself in distress or discomfort or um, trying to uh, avoid or distract um, my, my first response typically is to practice, okay, what, what is going on in my body right now? What's my body reacting to? What does my body need? You know, because um, our bodies uh, perceive threat from all different kinds of places and then send that message to our mind. And then that can be a, a loop, you know? So I think that a lot of how I am, how I try to work with that is, is really attending to okay, what am I feeling? It's tending to the emotions, right? What am I feeling? Why don't I want to feel it? Can I try a little bit more to feel a little bit more um, to increase my capacity for emotion? And that's really challenging, especially at a time when not only are people dealing with their own emotions and their own individual life circumstances, but we're experiencing these, these huge environmental and these huge um, social issues that we're, you know, we think sometimes that we're separate from, but we're not, <laughs> and we're all affected and impacted. And so it's a, it's a lot of, a lot running through us. And so, yeah, that's a little bit of how I'm, I'm finding myself working with it. Yeah. When you talk about it that way, you know, I, I was going back and thinking about, you know, what was the biggest impact that COVID had on me? And I, I'm, I'm a pretty healthy person. My immune system is really strong um, because of the activities that I do. And, uh, you know, I constantly mix my biome with other people with jujitsu. So we're like um, in physical contact with multiple dozens of people on a daily basis <clears throat> and literally like sweating on each other. Um, so... <laughs> So I, you know, I'm sort of like, uh, I go by that theory that, uh, you know, like when you have a newborn or, or a little kid, like let them go play in the dirt, let them get exposed to as many things as possible and build up their immune system. And I try and do that with my own uh, in some ways. So that part didn't really affect me as much. Uh, but during COVID, you know, when everything started shutting down and, um, you know, the world seemed to be in crisis and everyone around me seemed to be in crisis. Um, the things that I was working on and the projects that I was doing and the schoolwork that I was doing, um, for a lot of those things, it just, they, they seemed to lose their meaning. 
uh, in that context, right? So like the world was on fire, literally here in Colorado on fire. And uh, I was like, well, all the stuff that I'm doing doesn't really matter in the context of all the other major, major things that are going on around me. And so for me, like uh, a lot of the things that I put my effort and energy into really lost a lot of meaning. And that was really difficult. Um, and I, that's exactly how I felt. I felt lost. And in my body, you know, as you're talking about <clears throat> tuning into the body in those moments, you know, my, my mind was just like going crazy. And I was like, what is going on and blah, blah, blah. And does any of this even matter? Um, and I found myself tuning into my body more and, and really feeling lost and feeling disconnected. You know, I felt disconnected to my, to myself. I felt disconnected to the people around me because of the isolation and things like that. And, you know, it just, it just felt terrible. And so, you know, and I don't think I gave this much thought at the time, but my natural, process to get through that, I think, was to key into that disconnected feeling and ask myself, like, well, what are the things that I do that make me feel more connected to myself and more connected to others? And um, right away, you know, it was jujitsu for me, you know, and, and martial arts for me. And so um, luckily, our gym opened back up in July. And so we were able to get back in and um, and start to get physical with each other a bit, you know, we, we still wear masks when we're training, which is a whole nother story, but, um, you know, that really helped me to ground myself into my body. And even when I felt like all the, all the mental tasks and, and activities and things that I was doing and putting together, even if that felt meaningless at the time, or, or I was just questioning, where is this thing going to go? Um, at least I could be grounded in the moment, in my body, feel connected to myself physically through movement, and also feel genuinely connected to one other person, you know, the person I was wrestling with in that moment, you know, we were intimately connected in that way. And so it, it brought me back from, from a faraway dark place, you know, and, uh, you know, jujitsu has saved my life a number of times. And that's sort of a in the jiu-jitsu world, that's sort of a cliche thing to say, jiu-jitsu saved my life. It's like a hashtag, uh, but it's so true, you know, um, even in early recovery from addiction, like it was jiu-jitsu and the martial arts that kept me grounded and kept me focused and kept me disciplined towards my goals, uh, kept me away from alcohol, you know, kept me away from um, poor diet, you know, um, and kept me active and healthy. So, um the more you talk about it that way, you know, it, it makes sense. And I, I want to say thank you for sharing that with, with me and with everyone else uh, who will be listening to this. Um, going back to the puppy thing real quick again, um, you know, you mentioned about keeping it on a leash, uh, not too tight, not too, not too loose. And I think that's great for that metaphor. And I was thinking like, what are some other ways that we might want to engage with our mind as if it was a puppy it would be beneficial for us if we were to think about it that way. And some of the things that were coming to my mind were like, you know, we, we want to feed our puppy and we want to feed our puppy good food that's going to help it grow and mature in the right way, right? If we feed our puppy trash, uh, it's not going to grow properly. It's not going to develop properly. 
Uh, if we don't provide it stimulation, it's going to get bored or it's going to start going off on its own and chewing up the furniture, you know, or, um, you know, we want to discipline our puppy appropriately, but not too harshly, right? You don't want to harshly discipline a puppy and make it feel scared, but you definitely want to discipline it so that it's not, you know, going to the bathroom in, in the house, on the carpet and things like that. So, uh, you want to be a, you want to be able to train your puppy in certain ways, just like you want to train your mind, and that's that's a big part of my private practice. Is um, you know, I have a background in sport and performance psychology, so it's really about mental training and training the mind to work most efficiently for you in a way that that benefits you rather than works against you. Um, and we use all sorts of strategies from like Olympic athletes and. Um, professionals, leaders in every field, uh, whether it's CEOs or, or astronauts or whatever, like they all have well-established scientifically evidenced um, mental training tools. And so I try and bring those to the general population, to my clients through that as well. And also trying to bring that into the psychedelic world a little bit too. Because um, if our mind is disciplined and trained, we can navigate those altered states with, with much greater ease uh, than if our mind is just like, going everywhere. So I was trying to think of other ways that, that we would want to treat a puppy that would also make sense for, for thinking about how we treat our mind. And uh, in, those, in those times when we feel like, you know, this puppy is just not cooperating with me at all, what do we do? You know, sometimes we just need to stop being so strict and so harsh with it. We just need to go out in the nature or in the, in the grass and just play with that puppy, you know, and just, just let it let it have fun and let it know that we love it, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love that. We're talking puppies. Cause I love that with COVID all of a sudden, all of the poor puppies of the world that were just waiting for a forever home are now finding it. You can't even find a puppy now. And uh, in my neighborhood, I know we walk around and I'm going to be getting a puppy soon. Um yes a few months, but, but just walk around and so everyone's got their little puppies and so cute. And I mean, I think that, yeah, that metaphor, I think what I'm noticing with people with puppies is like, it's providing them connection. It's providing them a sense of play. It's giving them a purpose and a reason to go outside. And it's, it's giving them love in a time where people have felt so isolated. And so I think it's really beautiful. Um, you know, that people are adopting all of these puppies. And I think that, yeah, that would be the, the other thing that I would, you know, add is, is love is um, we're so harsh with ourselves. We can be so, um, we can be so adversarial to our minds. And so I think that uh, for me, it's like mental training, um, you know, and the, the work that, that you do and in different forms of mental training kind of throughout the centuries. And, and I think a lot of, I have you know, background in Buddhism and went to Naropa. And so a lot of my thinking often goes to non-dualism and to meditation. And um, I, I, I personally, in my own personal spiritual practice, feel like it's really important to um, maintain a balance between that mental training and the 
and I think we already spoke this a bit, but the, the heart centered body. And I think that's what you're, you know, you're speaking to definitely with jujitsu, because I think that um, it is possible to just train your mind through say meditation. Right. And a lot of people will report this who have been long-term meditators for many, many years, where if you focus too much on the mind, just on training it and just on discipline, right. Um, then sometimes you're also not taking into account the feelings and the emotions and, and the body. And so I, I really think that in, in spiritual traditions, I think, or I think that we're seeing a shift. I'm seeing a shift in a lot of people where they're, people are trying to step into a more of a balance where there's the mental discipline practices combined with also some deep emotional work, which includes addressing your shadow and addressing your, your trauma. Right. And cause I mean, meditation, if used one way can be a great tool to spiritual bypass everything that's going on. You know, a lot of people have successfully used meditation to completely, uh, override their physical and emotional experience um, so much that they're not even in touch with what they're feeling or what's happening. Right. So I think it's, yeah, I think there's, there's a real balance needed. Um, and yeah, big fan of, of ways and tools in which we can, we can train and kind of in back to the puppy piece. It's like, there's probably ways to train your, there are ways to train puppies. Um, <laughs> that are probably more helpful or useful than others <laughs> well yeah and it's and it's super similar to um how you train your your human mind too you know it's a classical conditioning model uh, with a puppy and i learned this from a from a dog trainer um but it's way more effective to train a puppy to do what you want them to do and use reward systems to give them rewards when they do what you want rather than a punishment system or a negative reinforcement and same thing with humans like we respond way better to positive reinforcement around uh, desired behaviors than negative reinforcement but um i don't know maybe it's our culture but we're, we're just drawn to a lot of um negative ways of doing things uh you know negative negative mindsets negative parenting things like that um so that's interesting um i tend to think of the mind as a tool, you know, um, and I used to think that the mind and consciousness were one thing, but now I'm starting to come into an understanding that consciousness is this, this much bigger and broader thing, uh, if it's a thing at all, you know, and that the mind is actually just a tool uh, under the umbrella of consciousness that we can use to experience consciousness in certain ways. Right? And we can fine tune that tool however we want um, to experience consciousness however we wish. And so I'm interested, you know, separating mind and, and consciousness uh, a bit. Um, how did you first get interested in consciousness as a, as a thing? Um, obviously, you're a therapist like me, and so we're, we're like fascinated, at least I am, I'm fascinated by um, consciousness and the human mind and how they interact and um, how they're malleable and um, you know you were talking about uh, you know you're, you're hinting a little bit at like rigid mindsets versus flexible mindsets uh, when you're talking about spirituality and, and spiritual traditions and 
being too focused on the mind, right? And mental training can put us in these rigid mindsets where we're bound to just snap. Um, but if, we're, if we remain flexible and, and we can travel between our body and our mind and, and travel when it's needed, you know, we can, we can remain flexible like a, like a tree bending in the wind so that we're not gonna snap. Um, but I'm, I'm curious, you know, how did you first get interested in consciousness? Like what sparked that, that interest in you? Because not everyone even cares about their mind or cares to think about consciousness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's almost like as, as you just, as you said that last sentence, I thought of like, uh, kind of when we talk about consciousness and material, right? Like if we're going to just talk about that, that spectrum or that binary for a moment of like the material world, and then there's consciousness, (laughs) um, that I think that, uh, a lot of, you know, whatever we want to call it, the matrix or the, the thing that we're plugged into that, um, we're trying to wake up from some of us are trying to, uh, you know, aware, like, Oh, something's going on here. And I might not have the full story of what's actually happening. Right. Um, and I think a lot of people are uh, really focused on the material world, you know, and, and I think that that's, I mean, uh, I can talk for, could do a whole podcast just on an ancestral work and kind of how we've gotten to this place, but, um, or some thoughts on how we might have gotten to this place um, that we're in right now. But, but in, in terms of your question, um, uh yeah, I think that, uh, so some of it was through pain. I think we wake up a lot through, through pain. We can, that's one path to awakening. Um, when I say awakening, just right. Becoming more aware, becoming more conscious, um, of ourselves, of others, of the planet, um, of something beyond our little ego. Um, (laughs) so I think that sometimes pain wakes us up, sometimes beauty wakes us up sometimes both I think in my life it was a combination of of both definitely um early on more of the the pain side um seeing my family um uh I come from a family that uh an ancestral long line of addiction um and uh you know I think ancestry is actually for me it's it's really important to bring into the conversation of of consciousness um, because our ancestry, our lineage carries a consciousness, right? And, and um, so my, my particular ancestry, um, I'm, I have a, uh, I'm multi, multiracial and my um, white presenting, obviously. And uh, I grew up in, in New Mexico, in Northern New Mexico. And Um, on my matrilineal side, uh, my, so my father's, uh, uh, European Croatian, and then on my matrilineal side, um, a combination, uh, we're Hispanic. So, uh, a confluence of, um, Spanish, like Spain, Spanish, uh, Mexican ancestry, and then, uh, Diné, some Native American there. So, uh, it's this interesting confluence on my matrilineal side of, of, of kind of like the, the confluence of people who settled in that area in New Mexico um, over the years, right? The Native Americans, the Spaniards, and the Mexicans. And um, I think that our, our ancestry and our lineage uh, were, were downstream from that. And we are, I, I believe that we're working in this body to heal 
whatever is unhealed from that, uh, from that lineage. And so growing up, I think a lot of what that looked like for me was, you know, seeing a lot of, of pain in my family system, um, uh, that I could see my, my parents and the generations above them, not navigating well, um, through addiction, through, um, problematic behaviors, uh, also just through struggling, depression, anxiety, things like that. And so I think that for me, it was the spark early on of what's going on here and what is what something doesn't feel right. And I think when we're, when we're little kids, when we're, when we're young, we have a sense of, of congruence. And I think we have a natural sense of, of what um, is healthy, but also when we grow up in the ecosystem of our family, we start to just adapt to that and that becomes the norm, right? So that becomes what we perceive maybe as healthy. So um, in my, like started struggling pretty early in my adolescence with, with depression and um, lost my father at a very early age um, from, uh, from a heroin overdose and so uh, I just remember at a very young age um, feeling this really intense pain and feeling it in connection to my family and just a lot of confusion of like, what's, what's going on here? So I think that it was initially um, my interest in consciousness yeah, came from, you know, I, I, I'm in pain. And I don't want to be in pain anymore. So what do I have to do to, to not be in pain? Um, and that took me on my journey. That took me on, on a spiritual path. I, I've always been a more spiritually oriented person, more mystically oriented person. So that's not something that like, you know, I think for different people, it shows up differently. It turns on or doesn't at certain ages, you know? So I have, I know people who are, they're like, you know, I was completely, not interested in spirituality or mysticism until I was like, you know, my forties or my thirties. And for me, I just always, uh, heard things, saw things, was aware of things that, uh, you know, other people were just like, Hmm, what? (laughs) So I think I I always had a sense of something bigger and, and a deeper connection. I always had a sense of deep connection to the earth and to nature and to the planet. And that's how I received a lot of my support growing up. I think that, you know, you, you say that, um, you know, jujitsu saved your life. And for me, I think nature and nature connection saved my life. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and then, you know, to the beauty, like that's, that's what it, what that part was too, was really connecting deeply with nature and starting to recognize um, that I could entrain with, and of course I didn't have the language for this at the age, but that I could entrain with nature and that when I was within nature, I was connecting to something that felt well, that felt healthy and that I could tell felt distinct and different than what I could feel happening in my family system. Mm -hmm. So, um, that took me on a journey of, of environmental studies and, uh, wilderness therapy. And then spent many, many years working, uh, in the wilderness, in the environment, um, teaching uh, about environmental issues, as well as just helping people connect to the to the natural world, uh, leading vision quests, and um, doing you know 
therapeutic backpacking work out in nature. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love how you talk about how both pain and beauty can be teachers uh, for consciousness, you know, and in my experience within my own self and then also within my experience as a therapist, and again, maybe it's a cultural thing, but we, you know, uh, I tend to, uh, for a long time, most of my life so far, um, I thought that learning through pain was the only way, you know, or was the best way, <laughs> you know, um, the best way to remember, you know, that something is important, you know, was through pain. Uh, it seemed like things that I learned through beauty were quickly forgotten, um, but I had a really good friend tell me one time, uh, she said, she said, uh, you know, when you, whenever you ask for healing or understanding or something, whether it's through prayer or you're just talking to yourself or through someone else, um, that it's okay to ask to gain those teachings through joy uh, rather than through pain, <laughs> you know? And I think uh, I wasn't being specific in my, in my asking, you know, I was just like, hey, you know, teach me this about myself. And then I, you know, tear a ligament or something or teach me this, uh, you know, and then some, some, I lose someone in my family. Um, but nowadays, you know, whenever I ask, you know, the universe or the, the field of consciousness that we're all plugged into, and I believe that consciousness these days includes the material too, you know, it includes material and all the immaterial and everything. Um, whenever I'm talking to that field, to that stream, uh, to, you know, it already knows what I'm going through, but I feel like verbalizing it uh, helps bring it or manifest it more into our life. I always ask, like, teach me through joy, you know, um, show me my shadow self and help me through that, but let's do that through joy. You know, you don't have to teach me through pain. <laughs> I've already had enough pain in my life. And so, um, and it works, you know, asking to be taught through a different methodology or a different mode, um, it really does work and it really does help. Uh, so I love that you, you were talking about, um, you know, that, that we can learn through different ways like that. Um, you were talking about being spiritually inclined for most of your life and, you know, I, I'm, I'm the exact opposite. <laughs> You know, most of my uh, early years, um, I was an atheist, you know, I was, um, I was not raised in a, in a religious family. My mom always, you know, gave my brother and I the freedom to explore whatever we wanted. And I'm so thankful that she was like that. Um, but, you know, I witnessed, you know, her having drum circles at my house and meditations with her friends and things like that. And I was just not interested. I was like, this is not going to, help you at all. It's not doing anything, you know, um, you know, be me being my rebellious teenage self. Um, you know, I became an anarchist or I became uh, an atheist or an agnostic, uh, pick your pick of those. And um, I, you know, like science was my, science was my God. Um, nothing was, was real unless you could prove it to me. Um, and I stayed that way. I was so shielded. I was so, uh, I had the blinders on for sure, like self-imposed blinders. And, um, you know, I can remember in my mid-teens, I think I was 15 when I went to military school and 
well, first, like when I was a kid, my mom would make us go to Sunday school um, just because I think she needed a break from us. Um, and I hated it. I hated every moment of it. And then in, when I was 15 and I was at military school, they forced us to go to church twice a week. Um, we were wearing like these full wool uniforms and it was the worst experience ever. Uh, so that further reinforced my, my desire not to be spiritual. Um, but then when I was 16, I had my first ever drug experience at all, like any drug, uh, before alcohol, before tobacco, before anything, um, I tried LSD uh, while I was at military school. And that experience like blew my mind open and showed me that there is so much to this world and to this universe and to this human experience that I have no idea about. Um, and that is not, you know, the things that I saw and the things that I experienced, I was like, there's no way science could even touch this. Um, and, by, and yet it's so real to me. Um, there's something here. And so from that moment on, I was like, I was forever changed. I started reading uh, about Buddhism. I started getting into meditation. I started, you know, exploring my mind and exploring consciousness. So I came to it at a later age than you did. Um, I think it's awesome that you've always been like that. I, I'm sure I have a lot to learn from you as a person um, in that regard. Um, but that brings me to, you know, psychedelics and a lot of your work has been in psychedelics. And so um, what, what got you first interested in um, the, the vast, wonderful world of psychedelics? Like before you even started with maps, like what got you interested in, in these, uh, these magic molecules? Thank you for, for sharing your story. I, I just, I get chills every time I hear about someone who, you know, had an experience like that, that, that just turned things on and everything was different after that. Right. And I think that, um, for, for a lot of people, there's like a, there's something in your life, right. There's like something that happened and like, I was who I was before. And then I was who I was after. And I love when psychedelics, um, are, you know, when I hear stories, when psychedelics were the catalyst for that, I love that you were in military school. <laughs> That's a great story. Um, and, uh, yeah, so thank you. Thank you for sharing that about yourself and, um, about that experience. And, and definitely, you know, um, even though for myself, even though I, I felt that there was a presence. I was very interested early on in like Taoism. I remember when I was like real young, like 10, nine reading books on like Wiccan stuff and paganism and like getting tarot cards and just being like really interested in that. Um, but I still, you know, even though that was a, a part of my awareness, I definitely have had the experiences where it was like, okay, I was who I, who I was before. Um, and then I was somebody totally different after, and, you know, a, a few of those peak experiences in my life, Burning Man being one of them. First time I went was in 2012 and it's like, okay, fine. I'm cliche. Burning Man changed my life. I still want to go to that. Yeah. Well, confused. we'll see. <laughs> um, so yeah. So, uh, with psychedelics, um, Growing up, uh, substances, so 
small town, Northern New Mexico, substances were really just generally substances were part of the, the culture. And I think for a lot of uh, people who grew up in small towns, maybe not all, but I think that um, there can be small towns uh, are interesting in that kids get bored, can get bored. And um, so definitely a lot of, uh, you know, exploration at a, a younger age. I think that there was more exposure. Um, to, I think my family as well, and in some of the, the drug use, substance use that was happening in my family, um, my father smoked cannabis. And so um, I saw that regularly. And I think so that was kind of like my first awareness of like, oh, that's a drug that's like not alcohol that like you smoke it. And I remember he used to feed me the seeds and he was picking through it and I was like, I don't know what this is. So, um, you know, remember kind of just seeing bongs at a very young age and being like, what's going on there? So I think I was, I was exposed to it at a very early age. And I've just always been just really curious about trying new things and just very like an adventurous spirit. And so, um, you know, kind of started exploring some of that territory uh, early on um, when I was in high school, pretty young, don't necessarily um, recommend that. (laughs) Um, I think that uh, I I do kind of agree in some ways with the philosophy that it's best to have an ego before you dissolve it um, (laughs) so that you have something to come back to. So I think that, um, you know, I I just... uh, from an early age was very curious in exploration and, you know, the dare program, uh, did, did not work on me. Um, I know for some it worked wonders, but yeah, totally failed that class. Um, so yeah, I think there was just like a, an inclination of like, there's something, there's something here. And, um, you know, I think that some, especially during teenage years, uh, I, uh, I think that there's, there can be uh, two primary categories of experience as a teenager, depending on our childhood. And one can be more conform conformity and the other can be more rebellion. I'm being very like simplistic here, um, but I was definitely like a rebel. And so I think if you, you know, you told me I couldn't do something, then I would want to do it. So <clears throat> um, fast forward, like <clears throat> many years, uh, into grad school and, uh, you know, going, going to Naropa and, um, with some, some, uh, of my fellow students and colleagues there at Naropa, um, we kind of found each other. Like I kind of lost touch with the psychedelic world in, in my undergrad. Like I wasn't, uh, I didn't explore, um, with psychedelics. I, I, I lived in, I went to undergrad in Hawaii, which I think was just so psychedelic in and of itself that like, I didn't have any experiences. And so, um, I, when I went to grad school, you know, found, um, some people who were really interested in the therapeutic potential of psychedelics. And I was like, wait, what? Cause for me, psychedelics and my relationship to that, when I was younger, would always just been like, it's just another drug. It's just another way to get messed up, you know? And I had some very profound experiences when I was younger, um, you know, some incredibly profound experiences, but I had not made the connection. No surprise there because of the social 
stigma and downplay of how much psychedelics have contributed to our society that it took until grad school for me to actually be like, wait, what, there was research going on around psychedelics in, in the 60s? Wait, what, this wasn't just like some things that like my high school friends and I were doing, you know? So when I met some kindred spirits in grad school and realized that, uh, learned about the work that MAPS was doing and realized that there had been uh, that there was research and work being put into studying psychedelics, treating people with psychedelics. Um, I was very, I was very, um, it was an epiphany for me because I thought about all of those experiences that I had had when I was younger. And I was like, oh, that there was something happening there that wasn't just doing drugs. You know, there was something I was experiencing. And, um, and so it just clicked. And so, yeah, some of my colleagues at school and I helped uh, co-founded a group called NAPS, the, the Naropa Alliance for Psychedelic Studies. <laughs> and um, in, when I graduated, I went to Burning Man and, and around that time met Rick Doblin and the rest of the, the MAPS crew. And, and that was the beginning of that. Yeah, I've been to a couple of NAPS meetings. It's still going strong. Um... I like that group a lot. Um, do you have like a, a favorite altered states experience that was either like like really formative for you? Like for me, like that first experience on LSD was was one of the most formative experiences for me. It, it completely changed. I mean, I'm I'm still that person before that went to military school, still very disciplined and. Um, but it completely shifted who I was as far as like being a rigid person to now a more flexible person or seeing through a lot of the, um, a lot of the social conditioning that I was taking a part of, you know, being at a military school and people telling you and giving you orders and you know, making you do things. Um, I saw through that for the first time and I was forever changed by that. And now I question all authority all the time. Uh, and it's such a wonderful thing to do. Um, but was there any, uh, you know, was there a favorite uh, altered state experience um, that you that you wouldn't mind sharing with with the audience that that shaped you in some way? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I think that it's it's interesting because it, um, the one I'm thinking of is like definitely directly related to the the work that I've I've created a career around um, with psychedelic peer support and harm reduction and festivals. Um, So actually at my first festival, which was Bonnaroo, um, I went, uh, drove from New Mexico to Tennessee and Tool is my like favorite band of all time. Led Led Zeppelin Tool, but you know, I, I, yeah, awesome. So family. yeah, huge, huge tool fan. Um, and I went to, uh, they headlined at Bonnaroo and, um, I had an experience that was, um, uh, strong, stronger than expected, um, more amplified than I, I had planned. Um, and, so was in a very non-dual, very expanded uh, uh, state where, yeah, I was not really connected to my ego. And it was a really beautiful experience. Um, the show itself was amazing to get to experience um, 
you know, that music uh, is, is just amazing in, in that state. And um, so at that point in my life, I hadn't decided to become a therapist. I didn't know I was going to become a therapist. My, my plan was to continue to work in environmental work and conservation. And uh, this show was, it's, it's interesting how when you're in those states, something that's apparently so small, right, feels so profound. And um, I was already on a, I think at that point, I was having these recognitions. I was an undergrad, I was in college, and I was having these recognitions. I was studying environmental science. And I was like, I'm going to save the planet. And I'm going to do all these things in conservation and I'm going to, you know, become an environmentalist and, and well, I already was an environmentalist, but I'm going to become an environmental activist and, and warrior. And, um, and like big, big props first off to people who are doing that work in working conservation and working to diligently um, to heal this planet. But for me, there was a point where I had this recognition and it was related to this tool show because kind of everyone left after the show and there was just piles of water bottles and piles of trash. And if, if I had been in just an ordinary state, you know, just been like, Oh, that that sucks. People are just leaving their trash around. But for me in the state that I was in, it was a microcosm of the whole world, right? It was just everyone's throwing their trash on the ground. And, and that's the norm at a, a, like, that can be the norm at the, at kind of bigger festivals sometimes really unfortunately, right? If people just throw things on the ground. But in that moment, I really saw it as like, oh, this is actually what people are doing. And it really, it, it clicked to me that there is no away that when we throw something away in the trash, it doesn't actually go away. (laughs) And that, um, really throwing a bottle on the ground, um, oftentimes, even when we try to like recycle things often don't get recycled and end up in landfills anyway. So in that moment, I was really seeing it as this, this microcosm of this bigger issue of people not taking responsibility for their own waste, not taking responsibility as consumers and just like consuming, consuming the earth. And then, um, and then just, uh, you know, essentially just defecating on it, just leaving refuse everywhere. And so that show and that moment, that experience, especially after seeing the, the beauty of Tool and what they bring and the healing energy that they are just transmitting and putting out there in the world. And then having that contrast kind of experience with, the, with seeing all of that. Um, that was pivotal in my, my decision to transition from working in environmental work to working with people's consciousness, because I thought you can te- tell people to recycle all day long. You can tell people to drive hybrid, their hybrid cars all day long. <laughs> um, but if you don't address consciousness and if you don't address people's disconnection to the planet and to each other and to one another, then people might go through the motions but they're not actually going to develop a deeper relationship to, to the planet and to each other and um, to the, to their fellow humans. And I see that as an extension. I see that, you know, like right now we're really in this crisis of, of, of a social justice crisis. We, we have been for a long, long time, 
but that's one of the things that's up in our face that we can't look away from that we're really being forced to look at. And I don't see those as separate. I see how we engage and treat each other as, as human beings um, and the injustices that are playing out and um, on, on many levels in that regard. I see the planet as an extension of, of that, right? Like we treat the planet um, in a similar way where it's just, it, uh, people are disposable. The planet's disposable. It's there for our, it's there for our selfish purposes. And we will do whatever we need to make sure that we are on top, that we have what we need, that we're taking care of and screw everybody else. Right. So I see that as kind of the same mentality. So that was a big shift for me in, you know what, I'm, I'm actually, I can't as a person work my whole life to try to save one species of animal. And once again, bless and thank you for those who do. But for me, I was like, I needed to focus on what is causing this disconnection and focus on healing and on, on helping heal that. Um, and I see them as one, as one in the same, I mean, environmental work and, and uh, healing and therapeutic work are, are very similar. They're, they're both, I think, healing modalities in their own right. Um, but for me, I need tangible results. I need to be looking at somebody, see somebody go, aha, oh my goodness, I'm not the center of the universe and everything doesn't just revolve around me and my little like corner of privilege. All right. You know, like that, that's what lights me up. Um, so long story about a very peak experience in my oh, life. Great. Um, man, I, I had so many thoughts during, uh, what you were sharing that I don't really know where to begin. I think, you know, getting to the root cause of, uh, environmental destruction and disconnection from others and disconnection from ourselves, um, I think is, I mean, it's that, that's, that's the target that we should be aiming for is that connection, right? Um, that is going to end up, you know, snowballing and then healing the planet, you know, rather than just trying to, to heal the surface level issue. It's like the, it's like the destruction of the planet is simply a symptom of the disconnection that we have. Um, and it makes me want to, uh, call up Rick Doblin and, and tell him to go give everybody on the planet some MDMA. Uh, for a day and see what happens. Uh, that would be interesting. Um, He's working on it. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> great. Uh, and I had no idea that you were a Tool fan. Tool has always been uh, one of my favorite, uh, probably my top favorite band of all time. I've been to a ton of shows, and um, I find that you know all their albums, but especially I, I really like their new album, uh, Fear Inoculum. Um, listening to that on sound canceling headphones when I'm in an altered state. Oh my goodness. Those, those guys uh, are on a different, they're on a different level. You know, they, they bend your consciousness as you're listening to them. And, you know, it's magical. It's so amazing. Um, I'd love to go to a show with you sometime. Uh, to, you know, when they start touring again, let's do red rocks. Yeah. I actually had tickets right before, um, I saw them in Denver right before COVID hit. And then I had tickets to go see them in Portland and Seattle. And uh, the night before it was when we were still trying to figure out what's going on. And like the airlines hadn't shut down and people were like, wait, what's happening here. And uh, the night before the show, 
in Portland, they canceled my flight and they ended up playing that show that last night, but then they canceled the next night in Seattle. So yeah, let's go Red Rocks next time. Yeah. Well, if we hear that they're going to tour. Um, and on a related note, uh, are you a fan of uh, Pusifer? I am. Yeah, good. Um, their new album, uh, Existential Reckoning, is also one of my all-time favorites now to, you know, when I'm in an altered state um, on any, you know, anything, whether I'm, you know, whatever, dancing, and I'm in an altered state, you know, putting that album on from start to finish is one of my favorite uh, dancing albums, you know. It's like, uh, I, I think of like Perfect Circle as Tool Light, and um, Pucifer is a tool that you can dance to. Um, so <laughs> they're, all, they're all related in my mind, but that's mm-hmm. awesome that, that you are a tool fan. Uh, I had no idea. Uh, I was hoping that, that you could um, speak to, you know, your MAPS career, your career with the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Um, you know, uh, that's actually, you know, I met you uh, right after a MAPS conference. Um, you know, we had just finished the big conference in Oakland and uh, I was on my, on my flight home and guess who sat right next to me on the flight home? It was Sarah Gale. And so you and I talked the whole time. I was planning on listening to my music and zoning out and re- rehashing the conference, but you and I got into a pretty deep conversation. I think you saw me carrying an Alex Gray poster that I had had him sign and you're like, oh, that, that's the Albert Hoffman poster. I, that's one of my favorites. And that, that really kicked it off. And um, yeah, I was wondering if you could, if you could tell, because uh, I, don't, I don't even think I know this story, but how did you get involved with MAPS in the first place? How did you get started with them? I know that you have uh, an illustrious career with them as a harm reduction um, specialist. And um, you're, you're moving on to, uh, you're still involved with the harm reduction stuff, but you're also expanding into other areas. So could you share with, with me and with the audience like how you got started with MAPS and how that career evolved? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm just thinking back to the, the plane and mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it feels like it's forever ago, but yeah, that was, that was special. Um, so uh, yeah, so in 2012, I, I graduated from Naropa with uh, my degree was in transpersonal counseling psychology uh, with a wilderness therapy focus. And, um, you know, I ha- had uh, helped to get naps off the ground with my, my fellow students there at Naropa. And um, uh, while we were, uh, so naps started in 2012 and we held a symposium. And um, uh, we invited to that symposium, um, Marcella Otalara. And um, she is, uh, so I, she was doing a presentation at the symposium on MDMA assisted psychotherapy. And at that time, I was less familiar with MDMA uh, than I was with other classical psychedelics. And um, I, uh, immediately resonated with her and listened to her presentation on, on trauma and the uses of um, the study, which at that point we were just beginning phase, phase two of the study. And she was working on a site here in Boulder. And so I met her and we started um, a friendship and uh, got to know her. She's um, 
an amazing woman, mentor, elder in this community, uh, holds so much wisdom. She's um, been one of the main trainers in the MDMA assisted psychotherapy uh, protocol. So, um, you know, in the, in the past uh, decade that we've had kind of phase two and phase three of the MDMA assisted psychotherapy work, um, she's been working as the principal investigator for the Boulder study. Um, she's been working as a lead trainer uh, for, there've been four main trainers. Um, the, so Michael and Annie Mithoffer and then Marcelo, Talera and, and Bruce. And so I met her, she became a mentor and she asked me to come with her to Burning Man. Um, she was going with her friend, Rick Doblin and to uh, who she had known for about 30 years um, to go do psychedelic harm reduction at Burning Man. And I was, I was like, I don't even know what, what that is, um, but I know what Burning Man is and I've always wanted to go there. Um, but had never been able to go because of school, blah, blah, blah. So I went to Burning Man. And um, at that year, Zendo Project, so MAPS has been doing some work in psychedelic peer support and harm reduction since early 2000s. So for about 20 years, they've helped um, provide services and staff at different festivals all around the world um, and events, including Burning Man. But in 2012, it was like the official launch of like the actual, what was called the Zendo Project. Um, and so we, it's called the Zendo Project because we have this beautiful repurposed cardboard yurt that was donated to us by a group of, um, of Zen Buddhists who had built the yurt and used it for the purposes of um, meditation at Burning Man. And so when they were done with that, they gifted it to us. And so that's where our namesake comes from with Zendo Project. Um, also because sitting for someone uh, can be definitely a form of meditation. <laughs> so I learned that that year in uh, 2012 and um, I sat for people and learned what that was to, to be a sitter and to provide support and um, was just kind of uh, thrown into. And then at that point I was a therapist, so I had skills that would help me, but I, I was, I had no idea what that was going to look like. And it was just so wild to see people having these huge opening experiences, but, um, not having any container to, to hold it, you know, and just ending up having a really difficult time or freaking out or people bringing, you know, not knowing their friends, not knowing what to do with them. So that was such an eye-opening experience and being able to support people in that place was just so rewarding. And at that time, um, the, the depart, the harm reduction department was like, it was barely even becoming a department at that point. It was like just the Zendo project. And at that time, Lene Ponte was, um, was directing, uh, she's the former director. And so um, got to know her and then um, her and I developed a, a close relationship. And then um, from there, she asked me to come back and join her to help to um, provide services at a few different events the following year in 2013. And so um I started working with MAPS in that capacity in 2013, um, really worked as the, the training and education coordinator for the Zendo project. So um, helped uh, develop and, and train the volunteers. Um, and then in 2016, um, Lene uh, stepped out of the organization and, and I became the director of the department in 2016. And I did that till 2020. 
um, simultaneously in 2013, I started working as um, on this on the uh, study on the MDMA PTSD study. So I've been doing both um, for the past nine years, and that's been a real gift to be able to do both the clinical work and work in in that capacity as a therapist, and also the the wild west of uh, psychedelic peer support and harm reduction. So. Yeah, I'm still working with MAPS. I still work as a therapist on the study. Um, and I transitioned from the director position last year uh, to really, um, yeah, it was just time for something new and just working on um, focusing on uh, some, yeah, making space for new arising and, um, you know, doing crisis work uh, for a long time. Um, it's a, uh, I think it has a shelf life. I think there's a, a certain point where it's like, okay. Um, so transitioned out of that position, but still um, helping to support as a uh, support as um, harm reduction officer with strategy and training and education and, and uh, sharing our message and, and doing a lot of, a lot of public speaking and, and uh, that kind of stuff. So yeah, it's been um it's, I, I don't know where I would, you know, my resume is all psychedelic. If I would ever try to find a job in a non-psychedelic world, I don't know what that would look like. Um, but luckily this is what I want to do and um, plan to continue to, to continue to do work in this, in this beautiful world of, of psychedelic healing and, and therapy and education. And we're at such a time right now with this work where it's just really um, blossoming and it's amazing you know it's, it's a lot to see it start to become more mainstream and there's there's a lot of beauty and um, we're talking beauty pain there's there's some pain points that we're navigating uh, through the psychedelic renaissance as well and navigating how to do this and integrate psychedelics uh, responsibly and and uh, safely into society which is some of the work that that you and I are doing together in Denver on the psilocybin decrim policy review panel. Yeah. Yeah. Um, who would have thought that going to Burning Man would end up in a career, a job? <laughs> <laughs> Most people don't go to Burning Man to find a job. Um, <laughs> they do, do that to, to get away from work. Um, no, and that's interesting. You said uh, your whole resume is psychedelics and you don't know what it would be like. Uh, I'm actually uh, reaching a point in my PhD studies where, you know, I'll be done with coursework and I'll be transitioning into my dissertation. Um, and so I need to find a, a, another way to help pay my bills and pay my rent and things like that because uh, graduate research positions aren't available if you're, if you're in dissertation phase. And so uh, recently, I've been applying for um, local mental health positions, and these are positions that uh, I've held in the past. Like, I've been a therapist at these uh, nonprofit community mental health centers, but my resume has changed since I worked there, you know, and I have, you know, of course, on my resume, I try and be as authentic as possible these days because it feels um, feels really good to me to be uh, out of the psychedelic closet in that way. And so I put on my resume, you know, that I'm working on this Denver psilocybin panel that uh, 
you know, I've been through ketamine assisted psychotherapy trainings and I've been through, you know, and I put that on my resume and I recently just had, you know, three interviews in the last couple of weeks for these mental health positions that I've already held in the past. And um, the first thing that each place brought up and asked was like, hey, like I see this psychedelic stuff on your um, resume, like what's that all about? And uh, how are you planning on keeping that separate from our abstinence models that we teach in our facilities? And uh, like I have the clinical skills and the, the boundary setting um, and personal boundary setting to be able to do that. But it was amazing to me how close-minded still some of these, um, these agencies are around even, you know, in the last few years, the psychedelic stuff has been on 60 Minutes, it's been on NPR, it's been in the New York Times, it's been all over uh, popular culture and still um, they're so close-minded to it. And um, I think that it was those psychedelic things on my resume that probably cost me those opportunities for work. And um, I don't regret putting them on my resume. Um, that might just be uh, the universe trying to nudge me more in the direction of psychedelic work saying like you need to get out of uh standard community mental health and um you know start applying for more psychedelically oriented or uh at least psychedelic informed or open uh, type of positions whether that be at a clinic or uh at a particular organization or something like that so i'm just trying to take it that way it's like it's a you know it's it's probably a sign that um i'm I'm past that uh, that part in my career where I'm, I'm only doing Western psychotherapy and uh, I'm moving more into what I really wanna be doing, which is the psychedelic uh, therapy and, and psychedelic informed research and things like that. So uh, it's interesting that you brought that up. I'm wondering, um, do you have, and I'm sure you get this question all the time. Um, do you have any, um, any particular stories or experiences around harm reduction um, that, that just stand out to you as like, whoa, that was a crazy experience or, or you know, I'm sure you can, you can maintain whoever's confidentiality it, it is who had the experience, but were there any experiences you had where, where it was just like, man, that was, that was crazy or that was draining or that was so healing or, something big because some people don't even know what harm reduction is and, and how, um, how off the wall it can, it can get, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's like that, that question over the years has shifted for me where it's like, it's become this kind of meta question where, you know, when people write books and they're like memoirs and they write about like real people, but then they like remove their names or sometimes they like combine characteristics of certain people and put them together so that all the details are, I feel like that's just kind of happened for me naturally, because after, you know, doing this for nine years, it's like, I remember the distinct experiences, but also it's actually, it becomes this more archetypal kind of experience of like the human, the human journey. And I, I think that, you know, for, for me, it also, you know, and I don't know how it is for the, for the listener, but for me, I feel like it's actually even more powerful when I talk about it rather than just like the one distinct experience. It's like, 
I think that what we're seeing often with the, with people's experience is, you know, if you are in a clinical trial or you're in an ayahuasca ceremony or you're doing ketamine therapy, you know, if you're doing therapeutic, clinical, ceremonial, psychedelic use, there's a, there's a container to hold you. Those containers vary in quality from container to container. And, you know, if for the listeners out there who are looking for containers, you know, do your research, learn about those containers, learn about those individuals who are holding those spaces. Um, talk to people who have sat with those people, you know, like do, do your research. Um, there's a term going around lately, Craigslist shaman, which I, which I, think is a really good term of, yeah, just beware, beware the Craigslist shaman. Um, and really, you know, this is your mind. Uh, be, as, we were, as we've been talking about today, you know, care for your mind and part of caring for your mind means, um, you know, making sure that it is in good hands. So a little bit of a, um, a little bit of a, a rabbit hole over there, but um, yeah, I think that what we're seeing is in with, with Zender project and other organizations that provide this type of support in these so-called recreational spaces. Um, I like the term, I like the term recreational because I think we can recreate well, recreational. We can recreate what it means to be recreational. And um, so uh, there's not often that container and, um, you know, people have all kinds of different intentions and they may be expecting that they're going to take a psychedelic. And some people in festivals and events are like, I'm going to take the psychedelic because I need to do some really deep healing around my childhood trauma. Like that actually happens. People do do that. Uh, majority of people anecdotally, I believe from what I've seen are like, well, I'm, I'm taking something, you know, kind of like what I was talking about in high school. It's like, all right, I'm just, just exploring, you know, I'm exploring, I'm wanting to connect. I'm wanting to have fun. I'm wanting to deepen my relationships. I'm wanting to, you know, all kinds of reasons. There's many reasons why people choose to take psychedelics. Um, but typically like, it's not like I want to just unpack all of my trauma here on the dance floor it just happens and that's why psychedelics hold so much promise for therapy is because they do bring that stuff up <laughs> so you know i think that what what we see in kind of the archetypal arc of so many people's experience is um touching into some deep existential place often related to aloneness or deep existential confusion around being a human being some sort of they hit some sort of place that contains sometimes grief sometimes pain sometimes extreme ecstasy right I like to say with with difficult experiences not everyone who comes to the zendo is having a difficult experience some people are Sometimes people come to the Zendo because people are having a difficult experience with them, right? Those are those really big transcendent states where person has all their clothes off, they're running around naked, trying to take over the DJ booth, right? So I wouldn't necessarily say that that person's having a difficult experience, um, but they're having an experience that is definitely uh, um, disruptive to others around them. And so... Um, 
so people hit this place where uh, they're having a challenge, they're having an existential crisis, they're having a relational issue, but it's like, it comes down to these, these deep levels of, of, of grief and pain that, that we're all working with that we were talking about at the beginning of the call. And they feel alone and they feel like they don't have anybody and their friends don't know what to do with them. And uh, so they come to us and we provide um, sitters who we work with and train prior to the festival. And really, I think it's a lot of unlearning, like it's a training, but there's also a lot of untraining. It's just sitting is, you know, for people who want to learn, learn more, they'll you know go to send our project and look at the website and explore resources about sitting, but really at the core of it, it's, I think it's learning to be human. It's learning to be present with another human being in their pain or in their ecstasy and joy and to stay with the experience with them and to not turn away. And I think everyone's, you know, when people come to the Zendo, that's the, the gift that they're receiving and the gift that the volunteers are offering, because this is a volunteer run organization, is, you know, I'm offering to be present with you. And of course, there's a myriad of other techniques and skills and all kinds of ways in which we help to teach people how to work with these experiences. But at the core, I think when people come into the space, they have an opportunity to really be witnessed and seen and reflected. And that is, that is uncommon. That is a rare experience. Um, they're also having experience where they're met with compassion, even if they're saying weird things, right. Or what might be perceived as weird. So it, and, and there's also a community healing aspect to it too. It feels kind of ceremonial because people come into the space and it's, it, it's relatively private. They're with their sitter, but it's a, it's a space. It's a big space, more, more like a, it's a yurt. So there's a communal aspect to the healing too, where people are, they're in a space where they're kind of witnessing each other, right? Like everyone has their little private little area, but there's an element of witnessing. So I, I see it as like when we, when we do this work that people are coming to these transformational festivals for all kinds of reasons, um, to, you know, wanting to connect, wanting to explore themselves, wanting to explore their consciousness. They choose to explore their consciousness in a certain way, bump up against those things that we find there and have an opportunity to come together in community and um, when they when they leave the space you know to have an have an experience where uh, they're they were able to be helped and the volunteers their experience is also really powerful too like it's so beautiful I mean the feedback that we get from the guests and the volunteers um, the, 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 the experiences that people have in there are like life-changing both as guests and volunteers and volunteers have these experiences and they're just like, Oh my goodness, what a, what a gift to be able to, to sit for people. And because it's peer support and it's not 
it's not mental health, it's peer support. We, if it's a mental health issue, we triage that up to mental health support. What that means is that you have people from all different backgrounds and all different, you know, not just therapists. So people who normally wouldn't have the opportunity to share in that sort of human exchange in that depth and that capacity um, receive that opportunity. And so, so um, yeah, as, as you can probably tell, it's something I'm really passionate about. Yeah, <laughs> sure. And, uh, you know, I'd love to, I, I still have not been even to a festival, um, period, you know, uh, but I would love to be able to go to a festival and see well, I have been to a festival like as a security guard in, in that kind of position, you know, which is way different. Um, but uh, I'd like to go experience a festival and go experience Burning Man and go stop into some of those harm reduction tents and just witness, you know, the work that's being done. Um, because, you know, I've, I've sat for a number of people myself and I know what that feels like to be in that that place, that position, I, I, but I want to, I want to see it done on a mass scale, you know, with, with 20 or 30 people in, in the same room, um, some having huge experiences all at once and, and to feel that, that real energy that's sort of cycloning through that tent would be, would be amazing. Um, so this is, this is sort of, uh, this will probably be my last question for you. Um, and it's not even, close to the topics that we've been talking about so far. Um, so you currently live in Boulder, correctly? Correct? I do. Yeah, and so um, the listeners will know this, uh, but there was a, there was a recent shooting um, at a King Super's grocery store uh, in Boulder. And, um, you know, I, I went to undergrad at CU Boulder, so I, I know the area well. I feel like part of my heart is still in Boulder. If I, if I could live anywhere in Colorado, it would probably be there if I could afford it. Um, but for someone who's living there um, and who also has ties, you know, your, your heart is tied to that city and it's such a beautiful place, um, what, is your, what is your take on, on what happened recently and, and how is the community responding and um, how, I mean, how has it affected you personally? Yeah, so it, um, that grocery store is my neighborhood grocery store. That's, that's right down the street um, from my house. And that's where I shop. Um, and so, yeah, definitely close to home and then close to home. And um Yeah, I, I haven't been spending a lot of time on social media, um, and I haven't been spending a lot of time, uh, you know, engaging in, in that way. Um, for me, when something like this happens, which un unfortunately is, has become more and more common as time goes by, these public, you know, these mass shootings. Um, I have a, like, my, my, my immediate kind of reaction or response is, um, I, 
it's interesting because I, I work in crisis, but it's like I, I freeze. My trauma response is a, is freeze response, right? So I've gotten to know that. I think it's, it's really good to get to know what your trauma response is. So do you, do you fight? Do you flee? Do you freeze? Um, and uh, for me, when something like so tragic and so big like this happens, um, I, I freeze and then I, I spend some time thawing, like my system thaws. And as I get older, I try to get better at not freezing, <laughs> um, being with the feelings, being with the emotions. Um, so, you know, I've definitely been spending time uh, allowing the feelings to move through me, allowing the grief to move through and um, spending some time, you know, with, with tears and with anger um, is really trying to be with my feelings as well as being um, a support for my friends who are also impacted. Um, yeah. And kind of the, you know, some of the one bigger thing that, um, that I'll, I'll speak to since, since you asked, um, this question that I think that I, I struggle with is, um, the mental health conversation as it relates to, uh, to incidents like this. And, um, I, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to speak my, my truth here. And I think it's a, it's maybe controversial and there's probably some, there's definitely people who won't agree with me. Um, but I think one of the things that I struggle to navigate when things like this happen is, uh, the, the, the public response that emerges that is, um, and we're seeing this a lot with a lot of things like or lots of, I mean, we're seeing it Republican, Democrat, gun control, not, you know, freedom where there's this, there's this very black and white way of seeing things. And it's like, people get locked into their position of like, no, it's this, no, it's this. And you think different. And so rah, let's hate each other. And then it happens again. And then the same thing happens again. So I think one of the most, the things that just really pisses me off about seeing this happen over and over again is that I see, and I have, I have compassion for how people respond to things like this. I do. I'm a therapist. I'm trying, <laughs> I uh, have to have that. But what I mean by like pisses me off is just frustrates me that we keep running into the same pattern in how we respond where we get into this very black, white, very, um, two sides and then, and then we fight it out and then nothing changes. And, um, one of those nuances that I, that I want to speak to is the nuance around mental health. And one of the things that I've, I've, one of the conversations that happens every time something like this happens is that there are people that, that go, Hey, I think that this person may have been experiencing some mental health issues. And then there's a camp of people who say that is excusing the behavior. And there's another thing that I hear, which is 
that is um, stigmatizing mental health. And it seems like there's those two camps and they just keep bumping up against each other. And so I think what that really shows is it's, it's not individual, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a systemic perspective of how we view mental health because we, we don't have a, I don't believe that as a society we've developed a big enough, I mean, our mental health system is one of the many systems and institutions right now where we're seeing the, the deep cracks in that is crumbling before our very eyes, which thank goodness psychedelics are coming in because I think psychedelics are going to help heal that. Um, but, you know, there's all these institutions that we're seeing those cracks and we're seeing them crumble, ideally crumble, um, but build new things in their place, you know, um, new structures. So in regards to the mental health conversation, as it relates to these, these ma mass shooting scenarios, these, these individuals, is I just wanna you know, invite people to consider, like to flip the script. And my invitation is, is somebody who commits an act like this, is somebody who, who, who actually commits this act, can you actually say, that person seems of sound mind, they seem sane, they seem mentally well and healthy. Um, my answer would be no. So my response to that is there's something, there is a mental health issue going on here. Yes. That doesn't mean just because there's a mental health issue doesn't mean that there's also that we need to have conversations around guns in our country. Doesn't mean that it's a excuse and that, you know, because there was mental health stuff that it means that this was, they get let off the hook. Right. So I think what, what I'm what I'm calling for in speaking this is um, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to, to, to speak it is is a bigger perception or bigger perspective around how we view mental health. Um, and that hope I'm hoping that in the coming years we can start to say, yes, this is a this is a symptom of, a, of an illness of a mentally un, unwell, not just individual, but system that continues to breed this kind of situation, um, see it from a more transpersonal perspective. Like this isn't just one person. This is also a, a systemic issue um, and address it as such. And so um, that's my hope that in the coming years, we'll start to be able to have more of a, a, a conversation around how to address this on a more holistic systemic level that touches on all of the different areas, mainly mental health and, and gun laws and guns. Here, here. Um, yeah, I couldn't have said it any other way, uh, any better. Um, so thank you for, for sharing that. And um, you know, I, I feel like I could talk to you all day, but unfortunately uh, time has run out for us today. Um, so I want to thank you again for you know coming to the show and, and sharing with me a, a bit more about you. Um, I feel like I know you so much better uh, after this two-hour conversation. And um, thank you for sharing what you have with the audience. Uh, I know that they're going to be grateful, as grateful as I am too. So just want to say I appreciate you and thank you for thank you for coming. Mm, thank you, Shane. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity. Okay. 
Holy moly, what an amazing show. Thank you so, so much, Sarah, uh, for your contribution, um, for for sitting down with me and just having an amazing conversation. I feel like we could have talked for many, many more hours, and hopefully, um, hopefully, you know, we get to talk uh, a lot more on this type of venue, but I know we will in, in person, but, um, you know, it's it's been such a pleasure to have you on. And, uh, you know, what an amazing um, turn of events in the universe uh, that came to be for you and I to meet uh, after that MAPS conference. Um, You know, we ended up sitting next to each other on the same airplane back to Denver, and uh, we didn't know who each other were, and we couldn't stop talking uh, during the entire flight. So what an amazing... um, synchronicity for you and I to come together and then for you and I to continue to work together on a number of projects. You are so valued and so needed in this uh, psychedelic community. So thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to come on to my humble little podcast. Um, Yeah. So thank you listeners for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed it. I I'm going to need to go back and listen to this one a lot, a lot of different times um, because there's just so much information and so much insight in there that I can learn from. Um, so hope you liked it. Thank you for coming back uh, after my hiatus. And uh, please stick around. We have a lot of good content coming. Go to the YouTube um, for the podcast. It's MindOps, M-I-N-D hyphen O-P-S, YouTube. And uh, also check out our social media on Facebook. That's the same, MindOps on Facebook. Um, You can find all sorts of cool stuff. Um, Please like and share all of our social media posts. It really, really, really helps uh, the podcast grow, guys. Um, But it only takes a split second of your time. So thank you so, so much. Um, That's it. All right. We'll talk to you guys later. Take care of each other. Bye. Conversations with the Mind podcast is sponsored, as always, by MindOps.com. That's M-I-N-D hyphen O-P-S dot com. Come check us out. We're an eclectic counseling company providing both mental health and mental performance services to individuals, small and large groups, teams, businesses, and military individuals through face-to-face sessions or at a distance using phone or confidential video chat apps. We bring a unique Buddhist Western lens and specialize in general psychotherapy for all mental difficulties, sport and performance psychology for performance enhancement through mental training, addiction counseling for any maladaptive or destructive habits, and psychedelic integration therapy to make the most from your visionary medicine work. We're available as well for corporate workshops to address the needs of your employees' wellness. Thank you for listening to the show, and please go check us out, mindops.com and the MindOps YouTube page.